Today's podcast is brought to you by ABC's award-winning comedy, Blackish, starring Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross. Nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, the AV Club calls it the sharpest, wittiest comedy writing on TV. Fearless and funny, Blackish is for your consideration in all Emmy categories, including outstanding comedy series. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, TV critic Caroline Framke talks with Alan Poole, director of Netflix's Tales of the City. Then, Caroline and fellow critic Daniel D'Addario will take a look at the year so far in television. Stay tuned. All right, I'm here with Alan Poole, executive producer and director of the new Tales of the City, but also longtime producer of Tales of the City in general. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So first, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about why it felt like Tales of the City should come back now. Uh, Obviously, it dropped on PBS 25 years ago um, and was a book series way before then even. So what made it urgent to come back now? What made you want to revisit the story? Well, to be honest, I can't take all the credit. I mean, I've I've had a long history with Tales and doing the three series that we did in the 90s, um, the first for PBS, the second and third for Showtime. I forged lifelong deep friendships with both Armistead and with Laura Linney. And um, we had made an attempt back in the 2000s to get to book four. Mm. Um, You know, at that time there were six books in the series. There are now actually nine books in the series because Armistead wrote three later books um, more recently. Uh, but it never got off the ground. And to me, we had done the first trilogy and it stood the test of time and I was happy. But uh, one of our executive producers, Andrew Stern, who was the head of television at Working Title, um, discovered in coming into that job that Working Title still owned the underlying property, mm. Armistead's books. And he had been a huge fan of the original series. And so he called me out of the blue and said, are you interested in doing this again? And I was like, well, I'll say hell yeah. That wasn't the actual <laughs> word that I used. Um, and so it really all came from him. And we got Armistead on board very quickly. And then we got Laura on board very quickly. And then we were off and running. And the biggest question was, if we're going to reapproach the Tales canon today, what's the story that we want to tell? Because mm-hmm. um, Armistead wrote three later books ending in 2015, I think. Um, but it didn't seem like the right move was just to adapt one of those later books. Um, it felt like we had to keep pushing forward with the narrative. Mm. Um, we had also been offered the choice to go back and remake the original and revisit the 70s through a different lens. Um, and my answer to that was, as long as we have Laura Linney, she is the one and only Marianne. And Laura, being comfortably into middle age, like all of us who did the original series, um, we decided to move forward with the stories with Marianne today. Um, and then uh, Lauren Morelli, our showrunner, came on board. And with Lauren and our all-queer writer's room, uh, we created new adventures for the characters that were, I would say, springboarded off of a lot of the things that happened in the later books, Mm. but with the addition of new characters that were of our own invention. Um, But to go back to your original question, the, the urgency for me is that Armistead's vision, the, the world of Armistead is a world that is all embracing and completely without judgment. 
um, and a kind of open-hearted storytelling that can push boundaries and certainly isn't safe or sanitized in any way, but where um, where we are able to learn to love our characters and 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 they love each other without restrictions and judgment. And that I find that kind of storytelling to be increasingly rare on television today, where we live in a world right now where um, darkness, grittiness, snark, and meta are sort of the keywords to describe series on Netflix and many other networks. Um, and so there was something about coming back to the world of Armistead um, and that vision of humanity that felt that it would be bold. I don't want to use the word old-fashioned, but 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 bold in uh, the way that it is going back to an earlier form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. A more, let's say, a more generous approach to storytelling a character um, without without the veil of cynicism that seems to like lay over most of our storytelling these days. And so that's what made the mission feel fresh and compelling. Yeah, I feel like the word that I always come back to when I'm watching it, whether it's the 94 version or whether it's this one, is earnest. It's in a good way. <laughs> you, you just cringe, don't know. <laughs> earnest in a good way is a little tough for me to assimilate, oh, no. just because earnest has taken on uh, a taint. Really? But, yeah, I mean, I would prefer to say... Um, sincere maybe it's a better word sure earnest just has a connotation in fact um there's a conversation between marianne and michael in the mm. in the first episode in which uh he talks about her earnestness as this old-fashioned quality that marianne is like, no and they have a dialogue but I, I mean i think yes all the qualities of earnestness it's just earnestness has a has a certain connotation now that is uh I prefer not to. See, it's interesting. <laughs> I would not. To. I would not have thought of that, but I also, but I appreciate that, and I. It reminds me a little bit, not obviously to the same extreme or anything, but there's a really interesting scene in the fourth episode um, where Mouse brings his much younger yeah. boyfriend to dinner. That's getting a lot yeah. of attention. You yes, already know which yeah. one I'm talking about. No, but I mean, it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. So I'm very happy of getting so much attention. Yeah. So just for people who haven't seen it. Um, Mouse, who's played in this version by Murray Bartlett, who's so good, and I was really excited to see him in this role, brings his younger boyfriend to a dinner with his friends who are his age, and they have this clash over words that the the boyfriend thinks are inappropriate for them to use. They talk about how they don't understand each other's struggles, and it's it struck me as the kind of intergenerational clash that not many shows do or would do or could do, and I was really excited to see something like it on this show. So how important was it for you to bring that into this. Well, you just put that beautifully, but that scene was very, very important to me personally. Um, I think that the, the, the initial um, impetus for that scene was that, you know, our, our writers uh, reviewed, they read all the books, they watched all the earlier series, and, and the sequence in the first series where uh, Michael is taken to what we call the A-gays, to this very, you know, upwardly mobile, society-driven group of gay man who are older than he, because Michael's the young one in the first series, uh, and is and is really put off by the superficiality and their judgment. Um, it's a famous scene, and we wanted to revisit it and mm. do a contemporary echo, but it became apparent very quickly that it was the perfect forum for us to introduce the idea of the 
cross-generational cross-generational dialogue within the queer community that isn't taking place. Hmm. That it seems like there's a um, there's a bit of a of a chasm, which was the AIDS epidemic, and then there are two very different generations of queer people standing on either side of it, and they don't really talk to each other across the chasm that much. Um, I think there's a reluctance to really engage with the the deep impact of the AIDS epidemic on the part of a younger generation, which is too bad because many of them just don't know enough about it. And on the part of the older generation, there's a tendency to look down at the younger generation because they seem entitled and because for those of us who were around pre-AIDS and during AIDS, there was a sense that every single thing that we gained had to be fought for very hard, as, as the Steven Spinella character says in that scene. So it was very important to me for the series as a whole to see that dialogue happen and hopefully having it happen in fiction would inspire uh, it's happening more often in real life. Um, and so I'm, I'm particularly very proud of that scene. It was written by Andy Parker, who wrote the episode. And it's, uh, it's certainly been a flashpoint for conversation about the series by those who have seen it so far, and I hope it will continue to be so. Yeah, I really also appreciated that it didn't, it didn't end in a neat resolution. You know, there was no sort of catharsis of, and now we've broken through, and now we all agree, because that's not realistic. So I, no. did, I did appreciate that, that it brought that up, but it didn't pretend like there's an easy fix. Yeah, I don't think, I, there's never going to be a kumbaya moment for <laughs> those two generations. It's not going to happen. But as long as they're talking um, and discovering, I mean, they're actually, the, the incident that sets off um, the confrontation is, you alluded to it, is that one of the older men very casually uses the word tranny. And Ben, Michael's younger lover, um, objects to that. Um, and uh, there was an incident at one point where Lauren and I were in the presence of, uh, of uh, actually, an old friend of mine. Um, and that word was used very casually without any sense that it was inappropriate. Mm. Um, and I realized that, yeah, we are, uh, both sides are at fault. But certainly there has been on the part of the older gay men, I mean, I'm saying men in particular, but older gay men who have survived the epidemic, uh, feel that they've been through so much that they, they're not really obligated to reach out and try to understand this weird younger generation that insists on using terms like non-binary. Um, but they are. We have to understand each other. And so I think we were trying to uh, shake both sides up a little bit. Yeah, I think you do. Um... Even in the new supporting cast of new characters, you can see the effort there to bring in yeah. different kinds of characters. I really, I really love the character of Jake, um, the trans man who's sort of figuring out his sexuality and what that means. Um, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's inter I mean, I've never seen that story no. on film yet. But, um, and Jake is, is in the books, in the later books. Right. Um, but that particular story is one that when we were doing all of our research and talking to, talking to a, a lot of trans people, um, it's, we discovered that's not an uncommon mm. uh, progression that happens right. um, for trans men because whether it's because of the radical, radically different appreciation of body or whether it's because of the testosterone or some combination thereof, that uh, the idea of a... Uh, 
a trans man who pre-transition was in a same-sex relationship and then transitions and then starts being attracted to guys. It's um, it's something that happens, and it's uh, I mean, Garcia is so amazing in the role. But when you follow Jake on this journey, uh, you don't see it as anything other than a journey of self-realization. And I think that was a really important story to tell. Yeah. And it's the kind of also nuanced sort of inter-LGBTQ community conversation that I just don't think another show could do as a side plot or something. I think it requires no. more than one. No, and also that's why, I mean, by being a queer show, having an all-queer writer's room, and Lauren and I are queer, and the, uh, all of our directors except one, um, meant that, hopefully, you know, <laughs> we, we, that we had the... Um, the vantage point from which to tackle topics that would be much more sensitive or much more heavily criticized if they were coming from a non-queer point of view. That we, we can kind of get into the weeds right. and touch on things that people may not see eye to eye about. Sure. And I think it's always pretty obvious to queer people watching when it's not coming from yeah, queer right. people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so now let's have our own dialogue because we can tell our own stories. Right. And that's definitely different since you first premiered Tales of the City in terms oh, of yeah. <laughs> there's now many shows that are trying to address this sort of thing, though not in the same. Right. I mean, it, you know, when we did the first series, it was just the fact that we were able to put these characters on screen was the radical bit. And also the fact that we were able to put them on screen and have them be like normal everyday people mm -hmm. and not in any way uh, try to sensationalize or generalize from the fact that they happen to be gay. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of why the original series met with such fierce opposition. Uh, because it because it was saying, yeah, we're just like you, and we love each other just like you. Right. Uh, and that was very hard, for, particularly for the Christian right, to take at that time. Right. And so as we mentioned, the original series premiered on PBS, and now you're on Netflix, which I feel like represents as good a evolution of where the TV industry has gone since then <laughs> as anything. Um, why was Netflix, do you think, the right place to put the story? What does Netflix bring to it? Um, when we put together the team, you know, with, with Armistead and Laura, um, for the for this new incarnation, uh, Netflix was always our the home that we wanted to be at, and we were really fortunate that we were able to uh, interest Netflix and in that they bought the project. Um, and I think for me, it was because uh, they have a tremendous reputation for being artist friendly mm. uh, and for for being invested in in the the voices of the creators and not in the sort of like commodified product. Um, they also are fearless with regard to subject matter, and they also have no restrictions on language or sexual conduct. Um, and I don't think we're a, a show that is shocking in any way. I feel like what's boundary pushing about this series is the way that we deal with so many different subjects as if they are part of normal life. Right. And one thing I always think about Netflix is that they have this incredible international reach. So the show is dropping on you know a day this, that's going to go on up Friday, to <laughs> Friday, Friday, June seventh. We are dropping in. I don't have the exact number of countries, but it's all episodes worldwide, um, and it's astonishing. Nobody else can do that, right? Um, and they um, so when we deliver the show, they spend about six weeks 
converting it into many, many languages. Mm -hmm. And so it hits the whole world at the same time. And that's a, um, that's tremendously exciting to me. Right. For these kinds of stories to have that kind of reach is unprecedented. And not only that, but just that what the story, what the story means to Americans as a, as a story about contemporary, you know, queer American life today is one thing, but what it will mean to viewers in countries where they can't take those kinds of liberties for granted is a whole other level. And I, I, I hope that for, you know, uh, young people in Eastern Europe or in uh, the, the Middle East or in Africa, that they'll be able to watch this show and see representation that they can't have at home. Uh, and see lives being lived that they maybe can't have at home. It's a, it, it, I, I can't pretend to be an expert about the status of queer life in many other countries, but I know that um, to think about this show and simply about how it will be received and the impact that it will have in the U.S. and the U.K. and Western Europe is a, is hugely limiting. Right. And... A show like this also can function as a little bit of queer history for people who might not know it as well. Um, well, in particular, one episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that's you where saw you my were transition heading. coming yes, from a mile away. Uh, you directed an episode this series, which for original Tales of the City fans must be must be very exciting. It's the origin story of Olympia Dukakis's character Anna Madrigal coming to San Francisco in the first place in the '60s. She's played by Jen Richards in a flashback, which I assume was a very intentional piece of casting. Absolutely to cast a trans actress in that role. Um, and you directed this, and I would love to hear about how that episode to get, came together and what you wanted to do with it. Um, the, the genesis of the episode was that um, Tales of the City always has a mystery, right? So we knew in this new series we had to have a mystery, and the, and the writers felt the mystery should revolve around Anna Madrigal because there are so many things we don't know about Anna Madrigal. And also to put her and Barbara Lane... Um, in jeopardy because it becomes clear very early in the series that she's being blackmailed and that she may lose the house. Um, and then to build it up so that we could provide the answers in this flashback episode and revisit the missing chapter of Anna Magical's life was a, such an exciting proposition that we all jumped on board with it. Um, and this is a chapter in Anna's life that Armistead had not really, mm. had never depicted and not really necessarily worked it all out in his head. Um, so as it happens, when we sort of did our loose math on the timeline, the, the, the time when Anna Magical arrived in San Francisco and would have been looking to complete her surgical transition, because in those days that's, that was the option. Um, and, uh, it just happened to coincide, be, be 1966, which then we had been doing a lot of research and we had seen Susan Stryker's incredible documentary called Screaming Queens about the Compton's Cafeteria riot that happened in 1966 and how it's such an uh, underappreciated key moment in queer history. It was three years before Stonewall. Um, and so that fortuitous piece of information that the timeline put Anna coming to San Francisco in the same year that the Compton's mm -hmm. Cafeteria Riot happened, it was just too good to overlook. And so we decided to build the episode around the riots. And Susan Stryker, who uh, who made that documentary and is, and is one of the people 
um, most responsible for bringing the Compton's Cafeteria Riot into the public view came on as our tech oh, wow. advisor for the episode, and we worked with Susan and uh, made sure we got all the details right. And she was on set when we were filming part of the episode in San Francisco. And um, I feel like it's it, it gives huge amounts of information about Animagical. It solves the mystery of the season, and then also we got to recreate a riot. So. <laughs> So it was it was it was a bit of a dream to get to direct it, and then with regard to casting, of course, in casting young Anna, we needed to cast a trans actress, and I just feel so fortunate that that we found Jen Richards, and that um, it was very clear from the get go that Jen was the person. I mean, the only person that I found who was ideally suited not only to deliver a powerful performance in what is a very difficult role, but also to allow the audience to, without doing any kind of impersonation, to allow the audience to buy in to the fact that this character they're watching is going to grow up to become the Anna that we know. Right. And the episode in that regard isn't also afraid to show her making some some complicated choices too that she had to in order to survive, but what did yeah. she what did she have to do? No. We, we see her friends. I loved seeing Daniela Vega a fantastic woman as one of her friends and the sacrifices she had to make there. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you say complicated decisions. I think you're being generous. <laughs> I'm um, trying to not spoil too much, but yes. Part of that and part of what's entailed is that we have all made terrible mistakes. Mm -hmm. We have all done terrible things. Uh, but forgiveness is, is, is really the appropriate response to everything that is human. And Anna's always been a bit of a saint. And so the idea of going back and discovering that Anna, too, did something that she was terribly ashamed of mm. was really intriguing because it fits perfectly into Armistead's world. And because she, historically in that period, she was put into a situation in which there was no safe option. And so, yeah, without spoiling, I mean, mm. she essentially commits an act of betrayal. And it's what she is uh, being forced to reckon with in the present day story. Um, and, and as far as Daniela goes, I had seen Fantastic Woman, and of course, it's an amazing film, and she's unbelievable. And so um, when we came up with the idea of this backstory, um, I, I jumped at the opportunity to approach Daniela. And when she came for the Oscars for a Fantastic Woman, uh, Lauren and I had tea with her, and we decided right there to write the role for her. Mm. So that that the role of Isela was conceived of and written specifically for Daniela. It was oh, amazing. Yes, she's incredible. It, she, I feel like whenever she's on screen, you're just like, what is she about to do? There's an unpredictability to her that I think is so perfect for that part. Yeah. Obviously, if you wrote it for her, you knew that. So. Yeah, but, the, but even then, her her ferocity. Yes. Um, as an actress, is still startling. So. Having done this new batch of episodes for Tales of the City and being 25 years past the beginning, I just, I'm, I'm interested in where you think queer representation is going. I feel like there's, you know, obviously it's so much, there's so many more choices. There's so much more than there was. Um, where do you think it's going and what do you want from it more? Um, I think, well, first of all, you think about, I mean, in, in the course of history, 25 years is not a very long time. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what has happened in terms of not just queer representation, but queer life, I mean, I'm married. And 
I can tell you at the time when we made the original tales, I, I was like, why would I want to be married? <laughs> Never want to be married. I was, you know, I was a rebel. I didn't want to like mimic straight bourgeois institutions. Right. And now I'm very, very happily married. So I look at the changes that have happened in terms of, in some sense, the mainstreaming of queer culture. Um, and it's an astonishing thing. So representation is everywhere. And I think that on the whole, it has gotten much better. There are still backslides. There are still, there's been, as you know, huge issues in terms of trans representation, in terms of uh, even as recently as a couple of years ago, Hollywood wanting to cast um, cisgender men to play trans women and how uh, damaging that is. And we're, we're trying to make those corrections. Um, so in terms of what I would want to see more to me, and it's, it's part of what I think we're trying to do with Tales is to um, not to not always be safe and not always be totally politically correct and allow the uh, fierce disagreements and different points of view within the queer community that it's it's a luxury now that we can fight with each other. Right, because it used to have to be a unified front because we were trying to make progress against a, 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 what seemed to be a, a, an un, uh, unmovable opposition. Um, so to let those different points of view, even those that are not considered orthodox, to give to give space so that everybody can have a voice and let the differences play out in a much more public sphere in a way that not only queer people can look at and appreciate um, and learn to appreciate how what a diverse and heterogeneous culture we are, um, but also in a way that then um, the, the, the community at large, the world at large can begin to see us in all of our incredible diversity. And I mean diversity not only of gender and ethnicity, um, but also diversity of philosophy. Well, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Caroline. I really appreciate it as well. We'll be right back after a brief message. Today's podcast is brought to you by ABC's award-winning comedy Blackish, starring Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross. Nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, the AV Club calls it the sharpest, wittiest comedy writing on TV. Fearless and funny, Blackish is for your consideration in all Emmy categories, including Outstanding Comedy Series. 2019 has already been a busy year for TV. Critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discussed what we've seen of it so far. This week we're going to do something a little bit different, and instead of talking about some new shows coming up, we're going to look back at the year so far, now that we're halfway through it. Uh, Dan, you and I picked some of the shows that we have admired the most uh, for Variety.com. We're not going to talk about all of them, but you can go check those out if you want to see all our picks. But for now, uh, I'm going to ask you about one of your picks, because when you first reviewed it, you were kind of meh on it, and then you watched the rest, and now you're pretty into it. Yeah, this is an interesting occupational hazard of (laughs) doing what we do, which is not a real hazard, but you'll find yourself sometimes not exactly eating crow, but wishing you had the chance to go back and say something different. In this case, I did. When I watched the first two episodes of Fosse Verdon, which were the episodes that FX initially gave, I was a little put off. Uh, It's a show about the creative partnership 
uh, between a legendary choreographer and director, Bob Fosse, and his long-suffering creative partner and partner in love, Gwen Verdon, who is a less heralded figure. The show seemed at first to be celebrating the man and the woman behind the man, which is a story that not only have we seen before, but I thought was in this case done somewhat uninterestingly. Cut to the end of the series uh, when I think uh, Michelle Williams, who's playing Gwen Verdon, pulls this thing across the finish line with her teeth. The show also following suit with this kind of gutty, forceful performance that only grows into what it's going to become over the full run of the show really begins to examine Gwen a lot more closely. This story of a woman who kind of, yes, suffers for uh, her love and in making him great, but also genuinely has ambitions of her own that aren't necessarily visible at the beginning of the show. Uh, That story gets told in really interesting and novel ways. It really worked for me by the end, and I really admire the achievement. And it's proof positive that sometimes things need a little time to grow. Um, I want to hear you talk a little bit about another new series uh, that we both really enjoyed. And this is this is one I recall you seem to like from the jump. So talk to me about Russian Doll. Russian Doll. Well, the last time we talked about this in the podcast, I was very careful not to spoil anything. Uh, if you still haven't seen it and don't want to know things, you can skip ahead. But I'm going to just assume that you have <laughs> at this point. Uh, I just I think I was really obsessed with this from the first place because it managed to really surprise me, which um, given how much TV we consume on a daily basis is really hard right now. <laughs> Uh, But it really, I thought, was just so fully formed right from the beginning. This, of course, is the Netflix series from Natasha Lyonne, Leslie Headland, and Amy Poehler. And I just felt that every episode had such a distinct purpose in that it, the cliffhangers were smart, the characters made sense. Uh, I've never, I think Natasha Lyonne, who also wrote and directed part of the series, has rarely been better, and she's already great. Um... And also, I thought it was just really smart about taking something that could have been a really basic Groundhog's Day type thing where she just dies over and over again. They could have just had fun with that, but they really turned it into the sort of metaphor for digging into your own trauma and figuring out your own personal demons and really facing them in a way that I thought was really smart. And we've seen a lot of shows try to do similar things, and I don't think nearly as creatively. So I was really um, blown away by it, and I thought that that would stand on its own. I didn't think it needed to continue. Um, I thought the ending was pretty much perfect. And then this week we found out it's going to be getting a second season. Uh, Now, um, allegedly they went into Netflix with a three season plan, so this wasn't totally out of nowhere. I am a little worried about it just because I thought it was so perfect in and of itself. But two of the other shows I put on our list uh, are second season shows that proved me wrong about not needing more, and that is, uh, I'm talking about Fleabag and Barry, two shows very different, um, not at all saying that they're comparable, really. Uh, one is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Amazon comedy, and the other is Bill Hader and Alec Berg's really pitch-black, dark comedy for HBO, which at this point, I would just call it drama, but that's neither here agreed. nor there. Completely agreed. Right? Thank yes. you. Uh, but both, again, like Russian Doll, I thought had such great first seasons that ended in a way that made perfect sense. And I thought, you know, if they didn't tie up everyone's journey really ended in a satisfying way. 
And when I heard that they were getting second seasons, I was like, eh, I don't know, do we need it? Maybe we should just end things when they're good. And then both came back for a second season and completely proved me wrong because their second seasons were great. Uh, so in that respect, not all respects, I love to be proved wrong. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes. uh, hopefully Russian Doll will do the same. Um, and pivoting a little bit, you put a couple shows on our list that I was really interested in. Uh, Special from Netflix and State of the Union from Sundance, Sundance. Now. Yeah, both yeah. Uh, truncated shows, both 15-minute episodes. Talk yeah, about it. Yeah, actually. Um, this is kind of proof that while more can be a good thing, sometimes less can be a good thing, too. I thought that these shows were going to be a little too paltry, and like you, I was proven wrong. Um, special is a 15-minute series from Netflix. State of the Union is uh, 10 minutes long. And both of them uh, use this format in a really interesting way. Um, special tells a really kind of elegantly streamlined story of a young man, um, a gay man with cerebral palsy, played by the uh, blogger and writer and memoirist Ryan O'Connell, who is also a gay man with cerebral palsy and whose experience mirrors the characters in many ways, uh, kind of coming into independence, self-acceptance, and finding his way in his career and in love. Um, you know, that sounds like a topic that could sustain at least 30 minutes an episode, and maybe someday it will as they build it out. Uh, but for now, I thought it was uh, pared back in, you know, shows are so often called novelistic. These felt like beautiful kind of aphoristic short stories that that very elegantly used detail sparingly, uh, but quite well. The same is true of State of the Union, which... Uh, is, is even more formatted. It takes place each episode in the 10 minutes a week that this couple, uh, played by Chris O'Dowd and Rosamund Pike, spend together before their couple's therapy appointment, at which, you know, the fate of their their relationship is ultimately going to be determined because they're contemplating, you know, the big ex existential questions of a long-term monogamous couple, whether or not you stay together. And it bleeds through without ever becoming overdone or wallowing in these people's problems, the fact that they both really do love each other and have very mutually compatible senses of humor. Pike doesn't often get to be funny in the way she is here. Um, that all bleeds through without it ever becoming a slog in a way that one might think a show kind of rooted in the concept of couples therapy is, would might be. It's... Uh, really nicely done and it stays it, that they keep that ball on the air they keep it aloft uh in just 10 minutes an episode and i think the running time actually has a good bit of good bit to do with that i love a shorter episode especially given how long every streaming premium cable drama seems to be going these days and all for shows going shorter yes i will put in a plug here for one other show on the list that doesn't quite fit with these other two but that is also you could watch in not even an afternoon in a tidy sub two hours, which is um, Netflix's sketch series. I think you should leave uh, six episodes, all about 15 minutes long, uh, you know, cope, working through the idea of social embarrassment and uh, thwarted pride without ever the episodes lasting long enough for you to become truly miserable. Um, speaking of shows that deal with, kind of 
Social embarrassment and boarded pride. Yeah, I love I, that. I, you know, I just came up with this as I'm looking at the rundown here. But that th- these characters that do true. kind of endure those things too, and. and 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 yet similarly we stay laughing with them and not at them. So talk to us about these two. Yeah, I put these two together um, in a way that I freely admit might look a little reductive on the face of it, but stay with me here. <laughs> um, I also picked Tuca and Birdie from Netflix and Pen Fifteen from Hulu, both uh, really female-driven comedies, um, and I think that they do make sense as a pair because they each tackle a stage of life that I think TV has rarely done from a female perspective in these ways. Uh, Tuca and Birdie is from Lisa Hanawalt, one of the creative forces behind BoJack Horseman, and seeing her do her own thing given her own show with the likes of Ali Wong and Tiffany Haddish as her main characters was really thrilling and weird and and just filthy <laughs> in a way that I wasn't anticipating. It's really gross. It's really gross um, <laughs> in a way that I love. It took me a second, but I think it was also because I just wasn't used to seeing female characters, even though they are birds in this cartoon. Again, if you haven't seen it, trust me, you'll just have to go and see what I mean. But uh, it also is a really smart show about being a 30-something woman in a way that TV has really not touched much. Um, The sort of growing up and growing beyond the friends you maybe had in your 20s and trying to figure out where your priorities are, uh, which also reminds me of another show I meant to put on this list and didn't, and that's Broad City, which had a really great final season. Uh, And on the other side is Pen15, which uh, is the Hulu comedy from Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, uh, which has the sort of high concept premise of them both acting as their middle school selves around otherwise teenage actors. Um, set in 2000, which for obvious reasons, the obvious reason being that I was a teenager in the year 2000. <laughs> yes, obvious if we know you. <laughs> exactly, I yes. was going to say. Uh, but that obviously resonated with me. Um, but they also are really smart about uh, tackling some really harrowing moments of puberty in a way that we have not, again, seen done for women in the same way as we have seen for prepubescent men. Um, so I really admired what they did there. And this is going to be a terrible transition. We're just going to go with it. Don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't. We maybe we. Let's not try. Yeah, we can just say, if I, I could just jump in and say, like, this year's been notably stronger for comedy, I think, than it has been for yes, true drama. And so we kind of jump back to the drama side of the equation with one of the few things that I think really did stand out. Uh, which would be um, When They See Us. Uh, Ava DuVernay's uh, four-episode limited series on Netflix um, that assays the uh, trial, wrongful conviction, later vacated, and uh, later lives of the so-called Central Park Five. Uh, The title refers to the idea that um, they are hopeful that someone someday, some way, will eventually see them as the people they are and not the people they've been painted by an overzealous legal system and a media complex that's set on demonizing them. It's really, really, really elegantly done, beautifully directed, wonderfully acted across the board, including all five uh, young men or boy actors. I'd like to especially shout out Jarrell Jerome, who anchors the final episode in what is not exactly a one-man show, but he really gets foregrounded. The earliest going of the series is dominated by a performance by Felicity Huffman, 
that I think under any other circumstances people would be talking about a lot right now. It obviously has been very effective in that the character she plays, former prosecutor uh, Linda Fairstein, has, uh, as people have seen this limited series, which is not exactly news, the convictions were vacated in 2002, they have been motivated to vocally criticize Fairstein and drive her from various uh, nonprofit boards as well as from uh, the comfortable life she leads as a novelist. She's no longer has a publisher. In short, I'm happy that the uh, the Huffman kind of legal travails of her own have allowed the conversation to be shifted to the performances of the young people on the show as well as by more veterans like Niecy Nash. I think that it is such a strong ensemble that, um, you know, that I think that it's well worth talking about all of them. I would also say that obviously right now, um, true stories are having a moment, a show we didn't include on the list and (laughs) arguably should have, maybe we'll see it again at the end of the year, uh, was Chernobyl, uh, the HBO limited series, which is obviously sparking huge conversation about an event that, like the Central Park Five case, is slipping into history, but you know, a whole new generation is discovering it, and I think that is one of the many interesting functions TV can have. But if you're not interested in uh, true life stories or any of the comedies we mentioned, there's always more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Noah Hawley of FX's Legion. Today's podcast is brought to you by ABC's award-winning comedy, Blackish, starring Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross. Nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, the AV Club calls it the sharpest, wittiest comedy writing on TV. Fearless and funny, Blackish is for your consideration in all Emmy categories, including Outstanding Comedy Series.